Good evening, folks. Thank you for coming. Um, please don't hesitate if you want to get up in the middle of class to go back and get some coffee or get a muffin or whatever. Just do it. I do not have any new notes for you tonight. Um, if any of you are missing the notes which I have given out for these two courses, or you're still missing notes for, for the last terms courses, come talk to me during the break. Okay? <coughs> All right, let's pray together. Father, we pause to remember that you are good, that your goodness has not changed, that your sovereignty has not changed, that your holiness has not changed, that the fact that you are orchestrating history has not changed. I think we all feel right now that things are very topsy-turvy. Please, Father, if you will, restore to us a sense of balance, and if we need it, give us a reminder that you are truly in control. Tonight, as we turn again to your word to study your ways, please remind us that your sovereignty is a comforting reality. We ask you to teach us by your spirit to preserve unity among us by your spirit, to build us up together that we may sharpen each other and that we may be prepared for those things that you have for us in the future together and separately that we may walk in a way that pleases you and be lights in this world. We pray this through your Son with thanks. Amen. Okay. We're going to move on tonight to talk about the sovereignty and the decrees of God in this hour and then we will get a little bit into Christology. Okay, the sovereignty of God and his decrees. God's sovereignty is a topic that is often viewed as being very controversial, especially as it relates to the doctrine of soteriology. We're not going to get into detail in tonight, uh, tonight on how God's sovereignty relates to salvation, but we will eventually, and what we will be doing is laying a foundation for that discussion when we get there. Now, the term decree is used by theologians in discussing the sovereignty of God. It basically means God's plan, but the word decree is used in a singular sense and in a plural sense that can be confusing. And I'll try to make that clear to you. When we talk about God's decree without specifying it further, what we mean is his comprehensive plan for all events at all times in all places in the universe which was established by God in eternity, and I should say in eternity past. Okay? This idea really is that God planned what flavor of tea I should be drinking right now and how far down the tea is in my cup. And yet, I chose. 
don't ask me to reconcile those for you during class. I can't really do it after class either. I have some <laughs> ideas, but but it's it's I think very clear in Scripture that God has a decree that includes all things, and that does not remove the profundity of the choices that we make for our own lives. It does not remove our responsibility. It doesn't turn us into robots. I don't think any of you here feel like a robot. I certainly don't. So we will struggle with this issue. Now, God decrees, I should have underlined and bolded this one, when we use the plural, are the components of his decree. Okay? It's a little confusing, but when theologians talk about God's decree, they mean the whole plan for everything, and when they talk about his decrees, they mean the components of that plan. The decrees that are most debated do concern how God works for man's salvation. Now, the decrees that involve his salvation include the following. The decree to elect individuals to salvation. There is debate as to the nature of this decree, what it's based on, and what its implications are. The decree to allow the fall. If you believe that God is sovereign, you have to come to the conclusion that God chose at least to allow the fall to occur. The decree to provide salvation in Christ. Now, we all love this one, right? We're happy about that. Thank God that he did decree to provide salvation in Christ. And then there's the decree that given individuals will believe in Christ. Now, depending on where you are theologically, you may not actually believe that God did decree who would believe. And the time will come and we will discuss those issues. And I guarantee you we will not all agree. And that will be fun, I hope. All right, we'll get to that in ST4 at the appropriate time. But let's talk a little bit about the concept of the decrees. The central verse on the decrees is Ephesians 1.11. Okay? In him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay? Now, the context in which this is given is in Ephesians 1, which is a very comforting passage in the New Testament that tells us that we are in Christ and we're there because God put us there. But in the process of Paul defending that idea, he makes this statement. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's not just salvation. Another verse that's very important is right in that same section. Verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. There's something going on by that. By the way, that word chose in Greek is eklegomai. It's the word from which we get the word elect. Other portions of scripture translate this, as if it said the chosen ones in Greek, it would normally say the elect in English. Okay, so that choosing is related to the concept of election. Okay. 
Let's talk about eight key concepts regarding God's decree. Can, can you, you folks in the back read that? Okay, that's about as small as it can be, right? I was trying to squeeze a lot in here. Okay. First key concept. God's decree is a single unified plan that encompasses all things. Now let's look at Acts 15.18. hope I got it right. Sometimes I get these wrong. Ah, yes. Okay. Acts 15.18. In the middle of James's speech, discussing whether Gentiles should be circumcised, he makes this statement. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Now, your Bible may have a slightly different rendering. Okay, Some of you have a Bible that says, says the Lord who makes these things known from eternity. Okay, There's a textual variant there. Both of those statements are certainly true if the one that I've put up and I've read is correct, it supports this doctrine. If it doesn't, we need to go to other places. Okay? We already read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, which said that God works all things according to his purpose. We read Ephesians 1, 11, that said that as well. Then there's 2 Timothy 1, 9. Let's start with 1, 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now, there's another statement about God's plan to save individuals, and it's a plan that goes all the way back before the creation of the universe. So there's a good bit of evidence to suggest that God has a plan that includes everything, and if it includes everything, it's obviously a unified plan. Okay? And it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, this is one of these things that will sprain your brain if you think about it. All the things that God has decreed. For example, God decreed that the bumper on my son's car should almost fall off when I drove it here tonight. <laughs> Why? I don't know. But that's part of his decree. Okay. God's decree was formed in eternity past. Now, we've already read the verses that support that. Right? That's already come out in Ephesians 1.4 and the one that we just read. God's decree is according to his sovereign choice and his free will. We've already looked at Ephesians... Well, no, we haven't looked at Ephesians 1.9. Let's take a look at that. We looked at 1.4 and 1.11, but let's look at 1.9. Okay, this is in the middle of a sentence. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. You ask why God does things the way... He does things, excuse me, it's because he damn well pleases to. Alright? I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be blasphemous there. I'm just trying to state it in a way that impacts you. That's the way he wanted to. He's the creator. He has the right to do it. And although his reasons may not be known to us, he's not answerable to anyone else, is he? 
Okay, Daniel 4.35. This is Nebuchadnezzar praising God after he's come to know him. He says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He, that's the Most High God, does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? God's not answerable to anybody. He does what pleases him. And isn't it wonderful that he is a good and holy God? How would we like to be in the hands of of an evil and wicked and sadistic God. It's a wonderful thing when you think about it, that he is what he is. Okay, God's decree is founded on wisdom. Let's look at those last few verses in Romans chapter 11 where Paul just sort of breaks into spontaneous praise after considering God's sovereign work with Israel and with the Gentiles. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become His counselor or who has first given to Him that it should be repaid to Him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now I cited this one to support the idea that God's wisdom is at work in his decrees. But did you notice the statement at the end there? It says everything comes from God, everything goes through God, and everything is for God. Ultimately, and again, don't take this the wrong way. Ultimately, we are cogs in God's plan. We are personal cogs who bear his image and will have the joy of knowing him and worshiping him for all eternity. But he created us to carry out his plans. And I think the biggest aspect of his plan, the thing that's behind it all, is not just calling human beings to redemption. It's bringing glory to himself. I think that's what it's really all about, personally. Okay. Gee, that was a segue, and I didn't even know it. God's decree is for the purpose of his glory. All right, let's look at Ephesians 1.6. Notice how we keep on going back to Ephesians. Well, let's look at verse 5. Ephesians 1.5. <coughs> having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. Psalm 19, verse 1. I think that's the one that says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, isn't it? Yes. Okay. We've got that. Probably should stick Romans 11.36 here. But one of the major purposes, if not the ultimate purpose, I think it is the ultimate purpose of the decree is for God to bring glory to himself. Now here's an interesting one. 
God's decree includes both his directive and his permissive will. All right, let's talk about that before we look at the verses. God's directive view has to do with the things that he makes happen. God's permissive will has to do with the things that he allows to happen. I don't think that God makes me sin. I think God permits me to sin. And yet I believe when he permits me to sin, it is part of his decree. But the fact that it happens by permission and not by direction means that God is not responsible for my sin. Okay? Now, there's a great passage here on this. I hope I got the right one. Isaiah 5. Verses 25 to 30. Okay. Therefore, this is, this is a pronouncement of coming judgment against the people of Judah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against his people. He has stretched out his hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were as refuse in the midst of the street. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they have come with speed, swiftly. No one will be weary or stumble among them. No one will slumber or sleep nor will the belt on their loins be loosed, nor the strap of their sandals be broken. Now, what is this talking about? This is talking about God calling the Babylonians in to be the agents of judgment against his people. Now, if we were to go to the book of Habakkuk, we would discover that God comments there that although the Babylonians do his bidding, God is angry with the Babylonians for what they do. He permits them to be the agents to carry out his permissive will, which is part of his decree, and yet they are morally guilty of sin because in the process of being his agents to carry out his will, they are guilty. Okay? Nobody works this way but God, as far as I know. But I think we have to accept this, that God uses the sinful actions of men, and even of fallen angels, to carry out his purposes. Okay. Now here's a big one. God's decree is enacted in part by free moral agents. Now, who are the free moral agents in the universe. And here, don't push this word free too far. Okay, I'm not denying that sinners are bound in sin or anything like that. But who are the free moral agents in the universe? Okay, Satan and his demons. Okay, that's part of it. Keep going. The, the holy angels. Okay, so that's the entire category of the angels, right? And then what's the other category? Yeah, human beings. 
right? As far as I know, the only categories of free moral agents in the universe are angels and humans. Now, angels break up into the fallen angels and the holy angels, and we all start out the same way. You know, our dogs may chew up the couch. Our cats may make messes where they're not supposed to, but when they do it, those are not moral actions. They're annoying actions, <laughs> but they're not moral actions. I think the only moral beings in the universe are the ones that are made in the image of God. And that is the angels and the human beings. Okay. Now we've already hit this, but let's hit it a little bit harder. God's decrees include sinful actions, but they remain the responsibility of the sinner. This verse in Acts chapter 2, I think, is the most succinct statement of this concept in all of Scripture. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Let's read them together. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Now get this. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death. Now, you see the clear statement there? What happened was part of God's decree, and sinful people carried it out, and even though it was part of God's decree, they are guilty of having done it. Okay? It's all there. Jean? Yeah? Interesting. Isn't it a powerful statement? It's a very powerful statement. And... Um, you know, one worth staring at more and following the train more of thought there, but it's it's a very concise statement of the sovereign control of God over history and the responsible participation of sinful men in his plan. Sure, that's, that's a great question. Does a believer have more free, moral freedom than an unbeliever? I would answer that guardedly yes. Okay, In the sense that unbelievers have no choice but to sin. Okay, They are bound in sin. Believers do have a choice to sin or not to sin. Now they don't have a choice never to sin. But they have a choice whether to sin or not to sin. And that's really the theme of Romans chapter 6. Where Paul says, Reckon yourself dead to sin and do not present your members as, as instruments of sin, but present yourselves to God. In fact, Luther, Luther called the condition of the unsaved the bondage of the will. And we, we may get to that. I'm not sure whether that's, that's in the process of what we'll discuss, but I think it's in your notes. 
Now, let's talk about some objections to this whole concept of the decree of God because some believers just aren't comfortable with this whole idea. Okay? First objection. The decree is inconsistent with man's free will. Now, please notice that the objection assumes that there is such a thing as free will. And as time goes on, we'll talk about the will of man. And maybe we'll hone it a little more closely. But the response to this is the writers of Scripture don't ever seem to see any incompatibility between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. They keep stating them all the time. Now, right there in the book of Ephesians, Paul starts out with this long, 13-verse long sentence in which over and over again he speaks of God's sovereignty. And in the second half of the book, he says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, because God wants you to do it. He doesn't see any problem. He recognizes that we are responsible moral agents, and he recognizes that God is sovereign and that he has planned everything that ever happened. And, and it goes farther. You know, it's not mentioned in Ephesians very much, but in other places, 1 Corinthians, a few other places, Paul says, when you, as a moral agent, do what God wants, God promises to reward you. Okay? So you can actually get rewarded for doing what God decreed that you would do. But you don't get rewarded for doing everything that God decreed that you would do, do you? We don't get rewarded for our sins. Okay? Now, back to your question. All right? It's right there. The unsaved do not have a free will in the sense of the ability to do good. Now, again, this needs to be qualified. Unsaved people do good all the time, but it's never good that is meritorious or reward-worthy, and it's not good that brings glory to the name of God because they don't do it in Christ. Okay? Now, not only does God use the sinful actions of sinful people to act to carry out his judgment, as in the case of Babylon and the Israelites, he also uses the good actions of the unsaved to bless human society in general and sometimes to bless believers. You know, I have a stepmother who is as unsaved as you could be. But when we were in seminary the first time through, she gave us a couple of gifts that help us pay for tuition. You know? She's not building treasure in heaven, but that's part of God's decree, and she blessed us. Now, again, the saved do have a choice. Let's go to Romans 6 and take a quick look at that. See, Mary brought this up because she was thinking way ahead of me. You're right on track. Okay? Romans 6, 11 to 13. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. 
Okay, there is a call to a choice. And that choice does imply a certain kind of freedom, at least. Okay? All right, the second objection to the decree. This objection says that the decree, which includes all things, makes God the author of sin. If God decreed that there should be a fall, if God decreed everything that ever happens, including the sinful actions of sinful men and women and children, you know, and the fallen angels, does that make God the author of sin? Well, the response is that fallen men and angels sin, not God. God decreed that they would sin, but God did not sin in so decreeing. God's provision of man's moral agency is a necessary part of his decree to glorify himself, but it doesn't make God a sinner. Now, basically, the responsibility for sin lies with the moral agent who performs the sin. And it doesn't go back to the person who is above him in the hierarchy. Now, this leads to some interesting discussions. If, if I stole a car when I was a teenager, I would be the one who would go to jail. Now, my father might have been responsible for not training me not to steal things, but he wouldn't be responsible for the act of theft, would he? Okay? The responsibility for the sin always lies with the agent who performs it, not with the one who is above him in the hierarchy. Are you satisfied with this response? I think it's a pretty good answer. Okay, next one. The decree renders effort to serve God pointless. If God has already decreed what's going to happen, then why should I do anything? You know, William Carey comes to the elders of his church and he says, I want to go preach the gospel in Asia. And they say, Mr. Carey, if God wants to save the heathen, he will do it himself. I probably got the story not quite right in its details. But <laughs> where was it? Was it India? I don't know where it was. India? Okay. Well, the response to that is while it's true that God has decreed the ends, he's also decreed the means, and that includes the participation of saved men. Okay? God has decreed that those who are in Christ who participate will be rewarded for participating. He holds us responsible to obey his revealed prescriptive rule, but not his hidden decretive rule. Now, I could spend five hours talking to you about this, okay? I believe God holds me responsible to obey the commands that are given to me as a believer in Scripture. I do not believe that God ever expected me to know ahead of time that Mi Young would one day be my wife, okay? I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm held responsible for carrying out the details of his plan that he hasn't revealed to me. And I'm going to stop right there because if I go any further, we're going to open a can of worms. It'll get us off track. Okay? We can talk about that another time. Okay, let's talk about the decree and predestination. All right? Everybody who takes Scripture seriously 
agrees that the Bible teaches predestination. Romans 8, 29-30 says, Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. The statement of predestination is there. However, there are two views on the nature of that predestination. Arminians and semi-Pelagians, these are a category of theologians, understand predestination as a decision of God to remove obstacles to belief from the path of those whom in his omniscience he can see will believe if presented with the gospel. This is not God's choice to bring them to salvation. This is a test in advance by God's omniscience to find out what kind of people they are. And if God looks down the halls of eternity and sees that Bruce is the kind of person who will believe when he hears the gospel, then God arranges to make sure that Bruce hears it. Okay? That's what's called foresight election. It has to do with God foreseeing. Okay? This is one understanding of predestination. The other understanding of predestination is the view of Calvinists who understand predestination to be a totally gracious, meaning not based on merit or quality or character, selection by God of individuals for salvation. It has nothing to do with what kind of people they are. Then, having made that selection, God actively works to remove the spiritual blindness of those whom he has chosen which would otherwise prevent their belief in the gospel. Now, basically, the difference between these two is that Arminians, although they generally won't quite come out and say it, believe that there are two kinds of people, those who would believe when they're presented with the gospel and those who wouldn't. Calvinists believe there's one kind of people, spiritually blind, spiritually dead, people who are incapable of responding to the gospel unless God does something to overcome that incapability. Okay? I'm in this camp. I think most people in our church are in this camp, but you'd be surprised we have somebody in, some people in this camp. All right? Arminianism is not considered to be outside of the bounds of orthodoxy, but I think it's a very difficult position to defend biblically. <laughs> I knew that was coming, Tommy. I knew that was coming. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there, right? It, it, yes. This, this, this amounts to a denial of total depravity. It does. It does. And I certainly don't hold it. But I think it is important to know, at least historically, okay, that the Armenian position has not, consider, is, has not been considered to be heretical or unorthodox. All right? We shouldn't go calling our Armenian friends heretics. Personally, I think they need to study their Bibles a little bit more, but, but I, I don't want to be too unkind here. Okay? Now, there is no intermediate position. 
You can't be, you can't straddle the fence on this one. Either man is sovereign in salvation, and that's really what the Arminian view says, right? It says God looks at man and says, okay, I'm going to work things out according to the way you are, or God is sovereign, and that's the Calvinist view. Okay. Um, and the rest of the comments down there I've already made. Okay. Now, we're, we're getting down close to the end here. All right. Remember that God's sovereignty, although it may be confounding, it is very comforting. It means that no one can thwart God's plans. It means that men need to take God's warnings of judgment seriously because nothing is going to stop him from carrying out the judgments that he warns us of. It means that the believer can have complete confidence in God's promises, and that includes those that apply to mortal life, like 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has come upon you except which is what is common to man, you know, the rest of it, okay? And the promises of eternity with him. By the way, I think there are far more promises in Scripture having to do with eternity than having to do with mortal life. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the promises having to do with mortal life are the promise that life is going to be tough. Okay. I think God's sovereignty puts our pride in perspective. There is no such thing as a self-made man. Okay? There are plenty of self-undone men. There are plenty of self-ruined men. But there's no such thing as a self-made man. And finally, I think God's sovereignty is another reason to worship God and to humble ourselves before him. Okay? If he is sovereign, and he is, the stupidest thing you could ever do is refuse to cooperate with him. What could be more stupid than you know refusing to get behind the steamroller instead of choosing to stand in front of it. You know, it's just it's just goofy. Okay. Any questions about God's sovereignty? Bill, uh, Bill Christoph Pat. mentioned free will. Okay. Uh, well, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Okay. I was thinking, you know, of course, in salvation, certainly not. But if man does make some good choices. Well, we, we make choices, okay? But I think the place where we have to be careful is we throw around this idea of free will carelessly, okay? I do believe that we have free will, but I define it completely differently than what people normally mean when they say free will. Well, 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 well explain it one more time. Okay, let me explain it. I'll do this quickly. When most people talk about free will, this is the idea. If someone comes up to me and says, do you want a vanilla ice cream cone or a chocolate ice cream cone? My free will says that I could choose either one and nobody knows which one I'm going to choose. Okay? That's the common understanding of free will. My understanding of free will is that I will choose the one that is consistent with who I am, and it will always be the choice that is consistent with who I am. However, who I am is something that develops through time, and the only one who knows me well enough to know who I am at that moment is God. 
And God, because of that, knows exactly what I will do, and I do it freely, but my free choice can never go against who I am. So in reality, whether I'll choose the chocolate or the vanilla is determined. Okay? There's no randomness in my choice at all. But the choice is never coerced. I simply do what it is my nature at that moment to do. Now, that's my understanding of free will, and I think it removes the difficulties of trying to reconcile God's sovereignty with man's responsible choices. I try not to use the word free will because it's too misunderstood. I remember Liz Johnson saying one time, God jiggles his will. <laughs> well, so, some people would say that. I'd probably say it a little bit differently. I would say that God knows who I am, and so he arranges my circumstances so that I freely choose what he wants me to choose. The term free will of man is, yeah. not, is not a biblical term. No, it's not. Where did it come from? Um, I think it's probably a humanistic enlightenment concept. I think, I think ultimately it comes from man's pride. Um, you know, the first person who ever exercised his will against God's will was Satan. You know, and there's that passage where he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And Satan thought he was really cool. But someday he will look back in time and realize that he was just doing what God had decreed that he would do. And he's going to feel pretty stupid at that moment. Um, yes? I mean, obviously we've all had a choice to do something, you know, the right thing is wrong thing. Mm-hmm. All of us have done the wrong thing. Sure. Do uh-huh. well, line that up with God knows who you are, and he knows, you know, your nature, which mm-hmm. is your sin nature, which is saved. Sure. Um, how does that work? So if he's allowing you, if you choose the wrong thing, Oh, he, he's definitely allowing it. That's why I said God's decree includes his his directive and his permissive will. Okay? And I, I think that's what you have to say. You have to say God permits me to sin, but he directs me to act in a godly way. And both of those are part of his plan. Okay? All right. Let's move on to Christology. Let's put about five minutes into this. We may not get all the way through it. Okay. Christology is the doctrine of the second person of the Trinity. It focuses on his person and his nature and his works. We're going to focus mostly on his incarnation and his sinlessness when we discuss his person and his nature. We could spend time defending the idea that Christ is divine and that he's eternal but I think we've already laid a lot of that foundation and I don't think we need to go through it. Okay? Um, we're going to hit them very, very quickly. Okay? We're going to talk about his identity within the Trinity, his pre-existence, his eternality, and his names in Scripture. Okay? Very quickly. He is the second person of the Trinity. We already said that his position within the Trinity reflects Functional subordination, not essential subordination. Remember that, right? Okay. He is an eternal person within the eternal trinity. He's always existed. 
And although he has taken on new names and added to himself an additional nature, his person is eternal and divine, and he has never lost the divine nature that he always had. Okay? Jesus has, or Christ, or the second person, however you want to label him, has a number of names in Scripture. There's Jesus, which is a terrible attempt to pronounce the Greek. In Hebrew, it's Joshua, Jehoshua, or Jeshua. That name appears a lot in the Old Testament. The name Jesus was not a new name when it was given to him. It means Yahweh saves. Every time you say the name Jesus, you're saying Yahweh saves. Okay? And there's the title, the Son of Man. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, and in Psalm 8.4, this term, Son of Man, is simply used to describe humanity, human beings. But in Daniel 7.13, it refers directly to the Messiah, and I think that's the way that Jesus uses the title when he uses it himself, when he says, the Son of Man came to do such and such. Okay? And there's the title, the Son of God. Now, this term in Scripture is also not unique to Jesus. The term Son of God can refer to angels, born-again believers, or to Christ. Okay? I think where it refers to Christ, it expresses his delegated divine authority. You can look these up there in your notes. His essential deity and the fact that he is incarnate and that that comes through an action of God. He is the one who is conceived in Mary of the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, he is the Son of God. Vicki? You okay on that? Okay. I think I was standing in front of you. Okay. Let's get into this briefly. We're not going to get very far with it. The incarnation and the kenosis. This term incarnation literally means the fleshization of Christ. It means the placing of him in a human body. It describes the event in which the second person of the Trinity took on an additional nature through the virgin birth without surrendering his divine nature. That additional nature was truly human, yet truly sinless. Now, Christ is a unique being. He is one person with two natures. But he's not two persons. Okay? John 1.4 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, key concepts regarding the Incarnation. It's an event in history. It happened at a point in time. Okay? The second person of the Trinity always existed, but he wasn't always human. It doesn't diminish Christ's essential and eternal deity in any way. When he became incarnate, he did not stop being God. It involves the addition of a second nature to his person. Now, those two natures will be possessed by him forever. Jesus hasn't stopped being human. And right now in the presence of the Father, where he intercedes as our advocate, he has a glorified human body. And he always will. Now, and someday, I suspect, 
we will have the opportunity to bow down and kiss his feet or hug him or give him a high five or whatever is appropriate at the time. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? We will see him in the flesh. And finally, the means of the incarnation was the virgin birth. Okay. You know what? Let's start stop here rather than jumping into Philippians 2. Becca, question. Can you tell us where in the notes that what you just said we're going to pass three minutes? The incarnation? Yeah, it's in um, it's in Theology 2 Notes on Christology Part 1. And probably in the first six pages. Okay? I think that's where it is. You don't see it? You don't have those notes? You know, I think I might not have printed out. Really? Yeah. I'm I'm sure I saw them, but okay. Uh, You don't have... Something that says CBCBI Theology 2 Notes on Christology Part 1? No. Okay, all right, well, I'll get that for you. I'll uh, make a note of that. Okay. All right, let's take a break and let's resume about 10 of or something. <laughs>